0: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen,
1: can I please have your attention? <laughs>
2: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. And you know what else is brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media? Our first big conference. We're calling it the What's Next event. And coincidentally, you can find out more about it at the whatsnextevent.com website. It's going to be on November 9 and 10. Tickets are 100 bucks, but they include a new complimentary subscription to the Dispatch, which you can Use for yourself, use for a friend, um, use to extend your existing subscription. We'll leave that all up to you. Uh, we're still putting it all together, but we've already got uh, confirmations from everybody from like Liz Cheney and Ben Sass to Tim Scott. Uh, more interviews and panel discussions will be announced as we go, but we know that a bunch of them are going to be, we know what a bunch of them are going to be. We're going to do an election 2020 um, panel, what happened and what it means for 2021. We're going to do a 2021 agenda, Congress under a second Trump term or under a Biden administration. We're going to do something on the future of conservatism, GOP 2024 and beyond. And of course, we're going to do stuff on the economy and, uh, and foreign policy generally. Uh, it's going to be a mix of interviews and panels, wrap up sessions. Uh, maybe I'll, at the end of the two days, if we can figure out how to do it, I will, uh, Maybe even cut my hair at the end of it. I'm not, no promises. Uh, but it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be really interesting. I think it's going to set uh, a lot of the agenda and the conversation in the aftermath of the election. And we really hope people can attend. Uh, so that's the what's next event.com. Okay. So our guest today is uh, my friend and and erstwhile uh, and brief former colleague, uh, Tim Alberta. He is the author of a really great book, which we talked about the last time he was on, called American Carnage. He's been covering congressional and Republican politics for a very long time. And um, we've got him here to talk about the state of things in general. I'm really glad to have him. I'm obviously, if you have not figured it out yet, I'm recording this after we recorded the conversation, so I know things about the future that you don't, um, including who our sponsors are. The sponsors of today's podcast are. Uh, the Bradley Foundation's lecture series, We the People, and um, a new advertiser on this podcast, new sponsor, which I am particularly pleased to talk to you about, the Kitty Poo Club. So let's get started. Tim, welcome back to The Remnant. Great to have you. Jonah, good to see you, man. So uh, we are recording this on Tuesday. It will probably uh, air Thursday morning, something like that. So... Between now and then, who knows, you know, uh, Donald Trump could go on stage riding a very large pig or something and blow everything up. I mean, I, I know he he said some weird things on Fox and Friends this morning. I know that shocks you, um, but I don't know exactly what they were. My wife just texted me while I was recording another podcast to say, I'm watching this train wreck on Fox and Friends. So uh, stipulate that we may be slightly behind the news cycle on all of this. Um, First of all, you're in Michigan. Yep. Okay, And uh, you're covering the campaign and all of this stuff. Uh, What's your just general big picture sense of how things are going? So,
1: you know, 30,000 feet, um, I think Trump's in trouble, but I I don't think that necessarily all paths to 270 have been foreclosed upon. Like, I, I think it's very difficult to see him getting there. You know, I also thought it was very difficult seeing him getting there four years ago. But I think that we're all prisoners uh, to the PTSD of 2016 and the belief that, you know, Trump defying gravity then uh, somehow means that he could do it again. Uh, I think these are just very different campaigns. I think, you know, for one thing, Joe Biden isn't disliked by three quarters of the country. Uh, he doesn't have some of the highest unfavorable and untrustworthy ratings in presidential history. He's not under active FBI investigation. I mean, there's there are just fundamental differences in the person that Trump's running against. And that shows up on the ground. Um, the intensity you see for Biden is not there, which is which has been a red flag for, you know, the last eight months for his campaign. And it continues to be a red flag. I do think that the Uh, The intensity that Trump supplies the opposition does compensate for an awful lot of that. And I guess what I mean by that, Jonah, to be specific is, uh, so, uh, you know, I'm constantly driving all around the Midwest. I was in PA last week. I'm off to Wisconsin tomorrow morning. Uh, I live in Michigan. I'm in Ohio a lot. Uh, What you see on the ground is not so much the sort of Joe Biden, the the pro-Biden-Harris intensity catching up with the Trump-Pence intensity, but you see the... Black Lives Matter intensity, you see the LGBTQ flag intensity, you see the signs around, you know, pro-science and, and um, you know, just sort of the general, like, cultural liberalism intensity, that's ratcheted up in a way that doesn't even compare to 2016. Like, it's just visible on the ground in a way that it wasn't four years ago.
2: Yeah, I always thought in the arguments about Biden, this idea that Biden doesn't energize the base and therefore he's bad, um, were stupid because... Trump energizes the Democratic base, you know, he just does, and um, and when you add in the the absentee and early voting stuff, that I think is because I think Biden's a bad politician normally, um, but this has actually been a kind of brilliant campaign where if you just stay out of the news and let Trump drive people crazy, people are like, screw it, I'm filling out my ballot, I'm putting it in, right? So now we got like thirty something million votes already cast and it's two to one among the places that report partisanship it's two to one dem Mm -hmm. to republican um it's it's the perfect kind of front porch campaign kind of thing in that way but so i want to ask you so like the stuff that is obsessing big chunks of Fox, big chunks of talk radio big chunks of donald trump's brain is like the hunter biden stuff right When you're on the ground talking to Republicans, how many of them volunteer that they actually care about that issue? Except in the sense that, I mean, on the merits, not like, oh, this is what's going to help Trump win, um, which is sort of a just a hail mary kind of thing. But like, how many of them are actually like knowledgeable about it and care about it as an issue by itself?
1: Uh, Almost none. Uh, I. I I can honestly, you know, it's funny, um, back when the Burisma thing was really burning hot, I was at a gun show up in uh, Birch Run, which is up in like mid-Michigan, sort of classic blue collar throwback labor democratic area that's now, you know, really, really pro-Trump. And uh, and I went to a big uh, gun and knife show up there. I spent the day, talked to a few dozen people, a lot of really interesting conversations. And that was really during... This is like January. And so like the barisma stuff was really, really um, topical. And a couple of people brought it up then. They talked about how, you know, th- this guy's son was, uh, you know, running a game on the government and how this just proves that the family's corrupt, et cetera, et cetera. And I was thinking about it the other day, Jonah, that's, that's literally the last time I've had anybody mention the name Hunter Biden. Uh, yeah. the, 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 the thing that, that fires people up, uh, Republicans, up about Biden is the senility bit. Uh, that's you know you hear that from almost every voter you talk to uh, that yeah. that he's not you know that he's not uh, capable mentally anymore that uh, he's going to be a puppet that you know um, AOC and Bernie Sanders are going to be pulling the strings behind the scenes and that this guy's a Trojan horse like that's the stuff you hear from voters every day but I can't remember the last time I heard anything about Hunter Biden and that includes over the last week um, I was at a family wedding over the weekend and uh, had a lot of interesting conversations there a lot of people who used to be really really uh, pro-Trump or at least Trump curious who are who have now faded away on personal grounds. But even among some of the sort of diehard MAGA folks that I talked to, the Hunter stuff didn't come up. It's 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 much more the like this guy, you know, Biden is sort of a sort of a an empty vessel for the left and he's gonna sell us down the river to China and et cetera, et cetera. But you really don't hear much about the the Hunter Biden stuff. And I'm not sure uh, whether the social media Outcry over Twitter, you know, banning the post story. Like, I'm not sure how much of that really gets into the bloodstream of people who aren't watching Fox all day.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 and I, and I think the Twitter decision was really dumb precisely because Uh, it gave it more life than it otherwise probably would have. Um, So let's switch gears a little bit. You said something we were, we were both giving a, part of this presentation for some group um, the other day, probably don't need to drag their name into it. Um, and uh, um, I think it was the Pentaveret, or maybe the, the Star Chamber, anyway, and the- um, the, the Freemasons. Uh, I love that work. Um, and the, the actually it was the egg council, but no, uh, we so we were uh, talking to these guys and you made this point which like, the second you said it became, like, oh, well, of course, that makes total sense. And, it, and I was pissed at myself for it not occurring to me. You're saying how if you could give Joe Biden truth serum, he would tell you that he would really like it if the Republicans hold on to the Senate. Um, why don't you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so look, I I think that the... The
1: conflicts on the left are real, and they are going to emerge after this election, win, lose, or draw. Uh, you know, whether Democrats control two-thirds of Washington or all of Washington or however things shake out, you know, th- there was a lot of pent-up frustration and and uh, internecine uh, rivalry that was ready to burst out in the open when Obama left office. And we saw the beginnings of it with the Bernie-Hillary primary in, in 16, and then the emergence of uh, AOC and the Squad in eighteen, and uh, I think that defeating Trump became such an all-consuming priority for the Democratic Party that you saw a ton of Democrats sort of uh, sit on their swords over the last eighteen months, and um, even during the primary. I mean, this was a remarkably like pacified presidential primary. There was very little blood spilled on the Democratic side. Like you think about the the fiercest moments of that primary. And they were pretty tame by comparison, you know, to to recent uh, presidential primaries. So there there was there were so many voters, so many activists, so many organizers in the Democratic Party who were just uh, willing to sort of uh, link arms and form this consensus around, look, for the time being, we can call a ceasefire. The most important thing for us is to defeat Donald Trump. If they do that, I I believe 100 uh, percent that you are going to see a, a real sort of civil war break out in the Democratic Party because there is no question that Joe Biden at his core is an institutionalist. Uh, he, he doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster. He doesn't want to pack the courts. He doesn't want to sort of continue to escalate the the. the what has been sort of a 20 year running uh, feud in Washington, where whenever a party seizes control of power, they basically just run up the score as much as they can and squeeze every ounce of juice out of out of the power that they have at the time. Uh, you know, Bush did it. Obama did it. Trump has certainly done it. And and Biden, I think, to his core, really believes that the country is in a, is in a precarious spot right now. And the only way to sort of, you know, bring down the temperature is to work with some of these republicans who are his friends by the way you know Mitch McConnell is his friend a mm-hmm. lot of these republicans in congress are people who he knows well and he likes and he wants to sit down and make deals with it's who the guy is and i think there are a lot of folks in the democratic party who are not going to let that happen uh, they are they are they are they're going to believe that democrats Uh, should be giving back to Republicans exactly what Republicans gave to them, that they need to be fighting fire with fire. And that's going to set up one hell of a confrontation between Biden and some of the more centrist Democrats uh, who are, uh, who, who believe, I think, Jonah, that a Biden victory would be sort of proof positive that that's what the country wants, that that's where the mandate is, is for them to govern from the center left and to build sort of a uh, a, a bipartisan coalition government in Washington, versus a lot of this pro- pro- progressive activist class that has felt like they've been good soldiers and sitting on their hands for the last year helping Biden win, but once he wins they're going to be sort of staging an all-out push for some of their big priorities. And, this, and so I really do think that Biden, if you were to ask him honestly, yeah, give me a 5149 Republican Senate where I have plausible deniability and say, right. look, guys, you know, my hands are tied. I got to work with Mitch on this stuff.
2: Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, um, I mean, he may not even realize it fully himself, but if you're, if you're just thinking about Agitation in your life, you'd kind of prefer to have Mitch McConnell taking some of the heat for you and saying, you know, ah, but for, you know, the if we only had the votes, we could do all of these things. That was that was one of my that was my major criticism. I think Biden's done only one serious, substantial mistake. And that was his frumpering and refusal to answer on the court packing thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, uh, it, if he had just simply followed the McConnell playbook, you know, um, and people people don't, I hear all the time, I see all the time on Twitter and elsewhere, people saying Mitch McConnell's never stood up to Donald Trump, blah, blah, blah. It's just not true. Mitch McConnell, when you know, Trump for his first two years was constantly saying, get rid of the legislative filibuster, get rid of the legislative filibuster. And McConnell simply had the best possible answer. He said, look, we don't have the votes. So it's really silly to talk about this. Mm-hmm. That's what Biden should have said about court packing is just say, hey, look, we don't have the votes, um, you know, and so it's a hypothetical. I'm not going to answer a hypothetical. Um, and the message would be to moderates. Oh, look how moderate he is. He's not you know, going in for court packing. And the message to the base is flip the get the votes, get the votes, and then we can try and do this. And instead, he's been way too cute. And he kind of read his stage direction by saying, you know, I don't want to make the issue about me and my controversial answer to a controversial question if he had just said that he would have just missed all of this pressure and he kind of blew it i think
1: I, I totally agree and and really i think uh to your first point like there's there's an easy answer for a presidential candidate to give in in so many of these circumstances which is look it's not up to me like this is this is something congress has to do we we've i mean this was my beef all throughout the democratic primary season, Jonah was the constant conversation about Medicare for All and this idea that that Democrats had the numbers in Congress to ever pass a Medicare for All bill. I mean, we were, we were spending up to 50% of some of these primary debates arguing about Medicare for All when there was just no chance in hell the bill was ever going to get to the president's desk anyway. So why not yeah. have a realistic conversation about something that Democrats in Congress could pass, that would actually require a presidential signature or veto. Um, and the court packing thing strikes me as the exact same conversation. If, if Biden or Harris had had really gamed this out, they could have just said, "Look, guys, my my opinion on court packing is as irrelevant as my opinion on you know uh, uh, on Congress uh, you know passing an omnibus package next October." Like it, ultimately when it gets to my desk, then I'll weigh in on it. But right now, it's just not something I have any control over. And I'm not sure why neither Biden nor Harris decided to go that route. It was, it it seemed to me like a pretty easy way to avoid, not just avoid the question, but avoid the controversy over not answering the question in a way that was satisfactory to anybody.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the primary thing drove me absolutely nuts where every single candidate, to one extent or another, some were better about it, some were worse, but they were They're acting as if, and I think this gets to it, and I want to talk to you about Congress in a second, because I think this is a good segue into it. They're acting as if we live in a parliamentary democracy. And if you elect my party and we have a majority, you know, in in England, if you elect the the Tories or you elect the liberals or wherever it is, they get to do basically whatever they want. They control the government and there are no real constitutional restraints like we have here. There's no checks and balances like we have here. And so you'd have Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and, and, um, and gang and all of these guys, um, saying on day one, going to ban fracking, confiscate guns, Medicare for all, all these kinds of things, as if a president of the United States has anything like that kind of power to do any of that kind of stuff. And... So much of our politics now is—I mean—and Trump was just as guilty of that kind of thing, and lots of Republicans. But the Democrats are particularly guilty this time around, and it's—it's it's this aspirational thing. It's like if you say you're in favor of the Green New Deal, it's no one holds it against you if you say you're going to do it on day one, even though that's like literally impossible to
1: do. <laughs> I, well, and this is uh, not not to lend any like emotional support to the the whiners and the moaners and the at the trump campaign but there is something to their beef with the debate commission now about not having a foreign policy centric final debate as planned because that is you know the one thing that is a legitimate uh source of like prolonged exchange and inquiry for these candidates like you're going to be commander-in-chief on day one that is the one area where you have uh Not not sole discretion, but damn close to it, at least at least in the realm of uh, of, you know, taking office on day one. Here are your responsibilities. Here are the things that are immediately on your plate. It's you know, you're the commander in chief. Uh, Matt Glassman, who is a a, one of the uh, congressional eggheads. He works at the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown. Uh, He's a great guy and he's a really good follow on Twitter. He had an excellent rant about this the other day. Like, listen, no matter what you think about Trump or about Biden, or about how a debate uh, could go off the rails surrounding uh, Hunter and the Post story and stolen information, whatever, uh, as it pertains to foreign policy, that stuff's going to come up anyway. But it's really crazy that we're going to have a presidential election and voters are going to cast their ballots without really having heard any sort of intelligent exchange of ideas on foreign policy between the two candidates when that is the, 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 the sort of overriding priority of a new president on day one.
2: Yeah, and, and and you know, the, I had John Dickerson on here a little while ago about his book on the presidency, and and one of the points that I think was Elaine K. Mark in there was making is that everything that we campaign on, you know, that we fight about in presidential campaigns, kind of goes out the window the second the president is elected, and then the president discovers. And I think she exaggerated, but you know, she was like ninety-five percent of the job is foreign policy. That's not true, but it's a much bigger percentage than yeah. the five percent we dedicate to foreign policy in presidential campaigns. Um, all right. So before we get, so before we move on to other stuff, um, back on the campaign, so you're just out there crisscrossing the, um, the Midwest mostly, um, how much does immigration come up anymore? Like when you <sighs> talk to people, cause I, it's amazing to me that it's just not, I mean, I, I think it's partly to do with the fact that Trump is actually doing well with Hispanics in Florida, because he doesn't want to talk about it, but you would think get for the first three and a half years of his presidency, given the wall and the immigration stuff, you would think you'd be talking a lot about immigration and then you just, this just hasn't come up anymore.
1: You, yeah, and you would especially think that it would come up because um, one of the sort of objective successes of his administration has been uh, slowing down uh, greatly in some cases, uh, the the inflow of illegal immigrants. Uh, that's, that's a success story that any incumbent president Would want to tell, and uh, for whatever reason, I think they've and and you know you put your finger on part of it for sure, which is that the campaign realizes that it has hemorrhaged support from college-educated suburbanites, particularly white women, but even among white men. I wrote about this a little bit this morning. Like there's there's a lot of red flags popping up in these polls all across battleground districts that show that college-educated white men in in suburban districts are now fleeing the party too, and so. They've got to stop the bleeding somehow, and they've got to compensate for some of those losses uh, if they're losing, a, you know, some healthy chunk of the coalition from 16. And there is a pretty compelling case that the natural place to go is, you know, Hispanic men, 50 and younger, who, uh, mm-hmm. who who are really turned off by what they what they see and hear from, you know, the modern version of the Democratic Party. and And Trump's folks have long believed that they can make inroads there. And I think that they are making some inroads there. It's just going to be a matter of scale. So I do think, Jonah, that that's probably a big part of the explanation for why Trump, when he goes out and does his greatest hits, he, he's skipping right over, you know, it's, it's like uh, it's like Queen skipping over Bohemian Rhapsody, right? You're like, wait, well, why aren't why aren't we hearing this anymore? The only the only to answer your question, uh, the only thing that you really hear from voters about immigration anymore, at least in my experience, is uh, when you ask them, what are you happy with? Uh, wh- wh- why are you voting for him again? What is he delivered on? And they say the wall, they bring up mm-hmm. the wall. Uh, they don't really bring up uh, slowing down the influx of illegals, although maybe that's, you know, maybe that's implied, but they do bring up the wall. And, uh, and I don't watch enough Fox to know whether or not that's something that is really harped on. uh, I, Maybe maybe it is, um, or maybe that's just something that they sense intuitively, because he talks about it a lot, and, and so do his surrogates, and so do local Republicans. I've noticed at the, at the local level, Jonah, I got to say this is a bit of a detour, but it's fascinating. At the local level, in this election, uh, I have heard almost nothing from any Republicans running either statewide or running in competitive congressional districts, I've heard almost nothing about repealing Obamacare. Like it doesn't even come up anymore. It's 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 a ghost. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say though, that like a couple of the baseline things you do here are, you know, one of them is definitely the wall. Uh, that comes up a lot. And which tells me that it's poll tested very well among independents and moderates. And that even, even um, democratic leaning suburbanites, uh, they want border security, which is something that mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the left is going to have to deal with, obviously, over the next few years. Uh, But yeah, you don't hear the actual issue of like, they're stealing our jobs. And, uh, you know, uh, we've got to round them up and deport them like that kind of that sort of that piece of the equation has really vanished in this campaign.
2: No, I think it's really important to have sort of a holistic approach to these things and understand things in their 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 broader context. And one great way of doing that is the Bradley uh, Foundation speaker series, We the People, Americans are navigating through several unanticipated crises this year. We the People, a Bradley speaker series, offers insights and ideas on the current challenges we face from some of the remarkable organizations the Bradley Foundation supports. Visit Bradley, F-D-N, as in Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or as an abbreviation of foundation, so that's Bradley fdn.org liberty, to watch their most recent episode, which features Justin Danhoff speaking on the dangers of shareholder activism. Danhoff is a general counsel for the National Center for Public Policy Research, as well as director of the Center's Free Enterprise Project. In this episode, he addresses the influence of environmental, social, and governance issues on society, retirement security, and free enterprise. The discussion sheds light on how activists are advancing social and political change through American corporations. That's Bradley with an L E Y at the end, fdn.org slash Liberty, to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so go back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. We thank the Bradley Foundation Speaker Series for sponsoring today's episode of a remnant. Yeah. So I, I have a sort of a nuanced question that I probably should have I had uh Kristen Soltis Anderson on, and I probably should have asked her this question as well. But I'll throw it to you. You know. Um, um, and there, I guess the reason why I should have asked her is because it, it does touch on um, on sort of polling in a in a sense. In 2016, I think immigration was a real issue for a lot of people. And as you know, we were once long, long, long ago, uh, colleagues at National Review. National Review is one of these places that takes immigration very seriously. And um, uh, and there are, I, I, you know, this is a point that I try to make a lot on this podcast. There are smart arguments for things, and there are very dumb arguments for things. And sometimes the dumb crowds out the smart, but that doesn't mean that the smart doesn't exist. And so a lot of the arguments that Trump makes about, I think, immigration are pretty dumb, but that doesn't mean there isn't underneath the mess. Uh, a smart argument there. But looking back on it, sort of like what you're saying about repealing Obamacare, I'm sort of coming around to this view that there are very few issues that voters really care about for the issue itself. And it's more what they imbue in it symbolically, psychologically, emotionally, culturally, and all that. And so Obama, the Obamacare thing, in some ways, I'm, I'm now thinking was more of a culture war issue than we appreciated. You know, I mean, all the wonks in Washington talk about, you know, mandates and 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 uh, life years that saved and all that kind of stuff. Same thing with immigration. Uh, you know, the there are serious arguments about the immigration stuff. But for a lot of people, it's just this emotional culture war issue. And if you take the culture war issue out of it, all of a sudden you find out that there are only a handful of people who actually care about the smart argument. And for the rest of them, it was just another thing to get all worked up about. Um, And so I think it's sort of interesting when you talk to people, like I would not have expected that with the immigration thing. I would not necessarily have expected that with the Obamacare thing. But when you talk to people on the ground, you realize, oh, we're not talking about that anymore, even though the the actual issues haven't changed that much.
1: Look, man, I, I, I don't think we can fully appreciate, and it's impossible to quantify, uh, just how, like, r- truly non-ideological most voters really are, and I think we've really discovered that in recent years. and I mean, I, you know, you gave a couple of great examples. I'll give you another one. Spending, I mean, yeah, sp- spending was this all-consuming concern for for Republicans in Washington, circa 2009, 2010, and the fact that it has not just receded but disappeared entirely as a concern for voters. I, it just doesn't come up uh, at ever, like ever. You don't hear. I mean, once in a great while, you'll find somebody who says, man, how are we going to pay for all this debt? Right. Uh, it, you know, and, but that's it. I mean, this idea of uh, spending as immoral, this idea of, of, of big government programs as a, uh, as a sort of, like sinister plot to saddle future generations with a socialist agenda that they don't see coming. Um, I mean, this was like spending was really, I think, as as much as Obamacare, as much as immigration. This this debate about fiscal responsibility was a proxy for a lot of things yeah. uh, over the last ten years, and really, uh, none of those things were like policy oriented, right? It was it was this idea of of like, you know, my people, my tribe, we're responsible and we, we're rugged individualists and we, and we sort of, you know, take ownership of our lives and those people just want to hand out checks to everybody, right? Like, remember the the fury about, you know, the Obama cell phone program, like, oh, poor people are getting cell phones paid for by the government. Like, there were all of these, and immigration, I think, was obviously such an easy one because, you know, it, it, it gets to ethnicity and race and skin color and everything else. But I think that there were a lot of other Fights that were, when we look back on it now, it's just like I mentioned this one in my book that was particularly memorable about the Christmas tree tax and how the Department of Agriculture, in one of these you know classic uh, you know uh, liberal moves to uh, to wage war on Christmas, o- Obama uh, allowed his Agriculture Department to levy a twenty-five cent tax on 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 a particular kind of fur one year because there was they were really expensive and people went insane. I mean, it was yeah. it was on Fox News for like 2 weeks and the Heritage Foundation uh had a had a blog piece that went up that was their most read piece of the year and the guy <laughs> who was the guy who was running the communications team at Heritage at that point, uh a guy named Rory Cooper, longtime conservative um uh, uh uh strategist. He told me he's like that was the moment for me when like the light bulb went off and I realized like wow, none of this is about policy anymore, right? That because yeah. it, because at the policy level, nobody cares about a 25 cent tax. It actually made sense fiscally at the time. You were trying to recoup some losses. But from a culture standpoint, yeah, it's 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 this guy who, you know, a third of our base thinks is a Muslim from Kenya and he uh, doesn't like us celebrating Christmas. So now he's going to make us pay for it. Right. Like people believe that. And you could go up and down the list with a million examples. But your premise is, in my opinion, absolutely right. I just don't think people care that much about policy.
2: Yeah, I mean... Th- I don't like my premise. You know, I was pretty enthusiastic for the Tea Party stuff. I was, we, and we went back and forth a little bit about this when last time you were on. Mm -hmm. I think I just knew so many of those people who were sincere on their own terms about caring about this stuff. And um, I don't think it means they were lying back then when they cared about it, but it does expose. Perhaps why they, you know, like, for example, you brought up the Obama phone thing. Um, I don't know if they actually went through with it or not, but Trump, you know, but, but Trump had these letters in care packages to food shelters that was going to have a, you know, congratulations, this comes, I gave you this kind of mm-hmm. thing.
1: Mm-hmm. If
2: Obama had done that, people would be losing their minds, right? Right. Or this, and again, I don't think it actually happened, but, you know, the Trump effort to do the... Trump cards from big pharma to pay for, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, um, people would be losing their mind or the, or the stimulus check, right. The, 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 uh, the check that went out this summer with a signature on it. Yeah. 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 And so I I, I hate arguments about false consciousness or any of that kind of stuff, but, um, it is weird to me how these cultural frequencies ignite policy issues that once you change the context, the policy issue doesn't matter anymore. And I haven't come to grips with completely what I think about it. Um, I do think that like in some ways the, the, the aha moment for me in recent years, not recent years, but like going back, you, you were probably still in high school, but do you remember the Dubai ports deal? Okay. So this was in the 2006, 2005 of Bush's presidency. Okay. And there was a port, like a commercial oil and gas and and manufacture, you know, import and export port in I think Louisiana or maybe it was Texas. And a Dubai company wanted to buy it. And people lost their minds about this. The right went crazy nationalist about how this is we are selling off our sovereign you know, independence and our, our, our capacity to make war. The left went crazy about it. And at the time it was like, okay, we got the Republicans going full on nationalist and we got the Democrats going full on socialist. And it was sort of a a weird glimpse of the future to come for me because when two parties go nationalist and socialist, that kind of leaves me out of the loop, you know? Um, but anyway, I, it's, I, it's, it's interesting to me and I don't, I, I hate the idea—what I I don't like is people—the argument that because people are inconsistent or guilty of hypocrisy, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were insincere at the time. It just means they hadn't really thought through what their actual position was, and they thought their position was about spending or about, you know, these various things, when really it was something else that they hadn't fully realized. Because there is no— I knew too many people who were sincere Tea Partiers who have now completely abandoned any of that stuff. And I don't think it's because they were lying back then. I think it's more that they're lying to themselves now, if that makes any sense.
1: No, it does. Look, I, I think that, um, and, and I don't know how you would even begin to try and divide up these various camps of people. But I, look, I, I, I agree with you to an extent, Jonah. Like I, I know some in the sort of conservative uh, you know, intelligentsia who were very much like to their core invested in this idea that you know the the, the sort of Mitch Daniels circa 2010 uh, the new Red Menace is Red Ink and we are you know we are like suffocating our the future of our republic if we don't. Uh, write the course. Like I do think that there were some people who were truly invested in that. I think there were others who were sort of shamelessly opportunistic about it after eight years of big government uh, programming under Bush and who recognized that they now had an opportunity to sort of Bush was so unpopular. The party was so unpopular. Obama was so incredibly popular that if there was one issue that they could sort of use as a wedge against him, that they felt like uh, where they would be able to sort of grab back the middle of the electorate during a terrible economic downturn, it was this idea that what are we doing financially, right? We're being really reckless. And I do think, by the way, that you're going to see those echoes of 2009. You're going to see them if Biden wins, right? You are going to see A lot of Republicans in Congress who uh, were were, you know, fiscal hawks circa 2010, 2011, 2012, who are now uh, who who have been willing during the Trump presidency to vote for every uh, dramatic budget increase, who have not shown any real Credible fiscal conservatism—they're going to suddenly rediscover their religion on spending uh, during the during the Biden presidency. If it happens, you can bank on that. Um, and so it's—you know—I don't—I don't disagree with you. I do think that there are some people who were really sincere about it at the time. And even, you know, Obamacare is another interesting example, Jonah. Like, I think it's tricky to to try and nail people down on Obamacare uh, simply because Republicans still 10 years later have not offered an alternative to it. So when you see a lot of conservative voters in red states voting in favor of Medicaid expansion, I'm not going to necessarily call them hypocrites for that because they haven't been really offered any other choice. And a lot of them, I think, have come around to this idea that like, look, this, you know, these programs are here to stay. And I don't like the idea of poor people uh, not having health insurance. And maybe I'm poor myself and maybe I'm a poor Republican. But Damn it. I think the government should be helping me out. So I'm going to vote for this thing. Right. Because Lord knows I haven't been offered any sort of a, an option B. And so, I, you know, the Obamacare thing is tricky because we don't need to go into the whole history of the individual mandate and heritage and everything else. But there hasn't been, I think, necessarily any clear ideological fault line for voters to really pick a side on.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And, and whenever, this, whenever somebody comes on here and says what you just said about how Republicans don't offer an alternative, someone will write in to me and say, Oh, well, that's not true. We have lots of alternatives, and my response is, yeah, lots of alternatives, but none that there's a consensus about that you're actually offering. There are, a, you know, there are 500 different proposals percolating around the think tankosphere, and I, you know, I live in the think tankosphere. I like the think tankosphere, but that's different than the Republican Party getting its act together and saying, okay, here's our alternative approach, right? And yeah, put
1: it put it on the floor and vote on it.
2: Right, and they haven't. And I agree, they haven't done that, not even remotely um so let's let's so how long were you covering congress i mean i know you're out there now actually before we get to congress uh i need i need a ruling from you um okay best on the road fast food plus
1: oh man um i mean it's almost too easy to say chick-fil-a i get okay i'm gonna get killed for this jonah but i gotta tell you man the way that Arby's has diversified their menu in the last couple of years. Really? Like you can go through Arby's now and you can get a a halfway decent Reuben sandwich, uh, or, or you can get like a nice, uh, fish sandwich, or they have euros now, Greek euros, um, like Arby's. And then, you know, you've always got the curly fries and the Jamocha shake to go along with it. So I, I've got to say that I've probably, if I look back on my expense
2: reports, I've probably spent the most money at Arby's. Interesting. Okay. So at the minimum, you would say most improved is ours. Most, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, definitely yeah. at a minimum.
2: Um, do you, so Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio is where you spend most of your time.
1: Yeah, right? Wisconsin. Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, so Wisconsin for sure. Do you ever go to Culver's?
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. I was at Culver's last week actually.
2: Okay, because Culver's is probably my favorite fast food place in the country. But
1: it's a it's a it's a hidden gem too. Not a lot of people know about it.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's very regional. Um, I think it's because if you can't there's something in the rules that says that you have to have these milk fed teenage girls working there that look like they're the grown-up Campbell soup kids. And if you can't find them, (laughs) um, then you can't open a Culver's. Um, But anyway, that's, I don't want to traffic in racial stereotypes or anything like that, but Culver's, I love Culver's. Um, And I won't, I won't drag you into the Wawa versus sheets argument, which no, no, we don't need to go there. I awaited into, I mean, I I want to protect your career. So people,
1: no, people get very emotional about that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and anyway, I I almost baited myself into the conversation. Okay. So (laughs) you covered Congress for a long time. Um, and you you concentrated a lot on sort of the GOP in Congress and all that. Um, why don't you just give me, you know, you wrote about some of this stuff recently. Um, when not you just give me your maybe autopsy is the wrong word, but your diagnosis, you know, about the state of the congressional GOP these days? Where do you think it's going? Is it salvageable? Who um, are you know? Take it, take it where you want to take it.
1: Yeah. Well, look, I, I think you would start with just the structural problem now uh, that uh, Democrats are for, for for all of the the fury over. Gerrymandering and uh, Democrats for the last few years talking about 2020 being, you know, vitally important because of redistricting. Uh, the 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 irony and sort of the the humor to to a certain degree is that the maps Republicans drew after 2010, when they dominated that election both at the federal and the state level, and they took over the the redistricting process in almost every state. The the maps that Republicans drew then, Jonah, were all uh, predicated upon this belief that the safest place to be a congressional Republican was in the suburbs, right? And mm-hmm. and so every one of these maps that was drawn by Republican state legislators, it was anchored by suburban districts. And sort of the the irony now is that if Democrats uh, could just step back and and leave the maps alone and not redraw them after 2020, they would probably be locked into a majority for a long time because of this very rapid realignment in the Trump era. So I, I just start with that sort of structural reality, because um, if you were to tell John Boehner and Eric Cantor and Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, if you were to tell these guys 10 years ago that there are no Republicans left in Orange County, and that uh, you know, in that in 2018, Republicans would lose 37 suburban-based congressional seats. Um, I think the, the most of which had been held for at least 20 years by Republicans. Some of them had been held for 50 years by Republicans. Yeah. Right? They they just wouldn't believe you, right? Um, no, I mean th- this is a hard thing to wrap our arms around in real time, and all this has happened so fast. That I think it's going to be for historians to like really sort it out and put it in context. So I think just at a structural level. Republicans are in a lot of trouble because of the hemorrhaging of support in the suburbs. But I think that very strangely and uh, and, and kind of, uh, again, humorously, their salvation may be in the redistricting process. Uh, Democrats are going to punish them in the redrawing of these maps, but at a certain level, they're going to have to give Republicans sort of a reprieve from this current predicament that they find themselves in. So that's, so, so I think that, it's a long road back into the majority for Republicans. I think just about everybody, including the people who run the party committee in, in Washington for the GOP, will tell you that Democrats are going to probably add seats to their House majority this fall. Um, there, there's no chance Republicans are going to take back the House majority. It's just off the table. And, and, and they probably, Democrats probably pad their majority a little bit. But I do think that uh, if Trump were to lose, then... Uh, what some Republicans will tell you privately is that it does allow them to sort of um, wipe this slate clean a little bit and that they have an opportunity, much as they did when Obama won, frankly, to sort of get back to the drawing board and say, OK, look, uh, you know, the party's unpopular, uh, the, the departing head of the party is unpopular. What are sort of the core, like what, what, what are the basics? What are the, you know, what's the blocking and tackling we can do to try and slowly rebuild you know, majority support around three or four important issues, and I do think that you know spending could very well be one of them. I think um, you know trade or, or China or national security more broadly. Like there are going to be some openings for Republicans to try and figure out how they can rebuild kind of a coherent opposition party. The problem, Jonah, that I foresee, the obstacle that I foresee is that you know you're going to have like Liz Cheney leading that wing of the party the people who are serious about this stuff and then you're going to have you're still going to have the Matt Gateses and you're still going to have the Louis Gomers and you're still going to have the Andy Biggses and you're still going to have a lot of these safe Trump district R plus 15 freedom caucus types who they just want to brawl right they just mm-hmm. want to watch the world burn they they're, they're not going to be they're not invested in sort of the the party they're invested in themselves and they're invested in sort of their wing their their maga wing of the right. Um, so I, I think it's going to be a long road ahead. I really do.
2: Yeah. I mean, I remember back in the day talking to people in the sort of Paul Ryan orbit, you know, and you know that orbit better than I do. Um, the part of their big, big concern was, this is back when everyone thought Trump was most likely going to lose, but their big concern was you could lose all of the Republicans that you would bet the future on, who are going to be the the future of the GOP, the guy Kaufman in Colorado, these guys who could win in purplish districts by attracting Democrats to the Republican Party, attracting Independents to the Republican Party, and what you'd be left with were was a, you know, it, it would put the the rump in Trump in terms of having a rump party that was. Purely Trumpy, right? Because if the only people, the, the safest Republicans in 2016 and in 2020, are the ones from the super Trumpy districts, mm-hmm. and all the ones that actually require the ability to talk to groups outside of the base, um, those are the ones in jeopardy. Those are the ones that were lost in 2018. And um, it seems to me that, like, like I, I'm a fan of Liz Cheney's. She's going to have her work cut out for her because yeah. the people who are going to be making Who are going to be branding the party are more likely not to be Liz Cheney, but more and are more likely to be Matt Gates, right?
1: One hundred percent. And look, I I probably was uh, too esoteric a minute ago. Like, you know, let me just say it as plainly as I can. There's this. There's this notion, Jonah, that a Trump loss, even a Trump landslide loss, would somehow. Uh, prompt this reckoning inside the Republican Party and that there's suddenly going to be this like come to Jesus conversation about everything that's gone wrong in the party and a need to reset and rebuild and kind of rebrand the party uh, and shed the, the the baggage of Trumpism. But the party, by nature of that that those you know sort of structural realities that you were just speaking to, the party in Congress at a, at an in the elected class is going to be more concentrated than ever. With the Trump loyalists, with the with the MAGA enthusiasts, with the Freedom Caucus types. So, yeah, I mean, look, this is this is going to be really hard. And I think also to the point you were raising, um, you know, you look at 2018, you look at a lot of these really, really competent just savvy good politicians good policy people on the republican side who got wiped out right they were the first casualties and and there were going to be more of them now in 2020 i mean i've said for the last couple of years if you're a republican the guy who you would want running your party uh in the near future is will hurt down in the 23rd district of texas super super good legislator super smart um you know a pretty conservative guy but but like you know can have a conversation with anybody about anything Um, You know, black Republican who represented a 70 percent Hispanic district on the southern border, a former CIA officer. The guy came to Congress in the first place because when he was overseas in Afghanistan doing Jack Bauer, he had to brief a congressional delegation that came over there. This is like 15 years ago. And when he was delivering the briefing, he realized that none of these people understood the difference between Sunni and Shia. And he was so (laughs) and he was so offended by the low caliber of people we send to Congress, that he comes home, he runs for Congress, he wins in a district that Republicans have no district, w- uh, no business winning. And over the next like six years, he passes more legislation into law than any member of Congress. And everyone on Capitol Hill, conservative Republicans, progressive Democrats, anybody up there will tell you that he's like one of the most impressive people they've ever been around. And now he's leaving. He's yeah. leaving because he he's completely fed up with the party. He's completely fed up with Congress. His district has been whittled down to the point where even a guy like him, he's going to be almost impossible to hang onto his seat if he had run again for reelection. So he just voluntarily bowed out, and that's the sort of brain drain that Republicans have been dealing with over the last four years. And I think it's probably going to get worse before it gets better.
2: Yeah, no. I mean, although getting worse before it gets better, I mean, there are certain things in life that just that work that way that you sort of have to go through them to get to the other side, and then you learn some lessons. And one of them has to do with cleaning up kitty litter. And that's why I want to talk about the Kitty Poo Club. Okay, so uh, on a recent episode of the Dispatch Podcast, which you guys should be listening to, it gets better every week, it's fun, it's interesting, Um, and and the punditry is so rank, it's like sweet, sweet, you know, gooey Hindu Kush hemp or something. I don't know what these kids talk about. Anyway, uh, on a recent episode of the Dispatch Podcast, Uh, Sarah Isger asked all of us, which chores at home that we hate the most? And mine was an easy answer. It was cleaning the litter boxes. I hate it. I like 50% of my cats a great deal. Um, As people know, I have two cats. We have uh, the good cat and my wife's cat, but uh, they both produce the same net product after eating and drinking. Um, regardless of my feelings for them, and uh, having to like bend down, I have a bad back, scooping out that stuff. Um, you know, I mean, just pulling one Paul Krugman column after another out of the litter—it dr- drives me crazy. And so that's why I'm very excited to try this product from the Kitty Poo Club. It is a great idea. It's a dis- essentially a disposable litter box. Kitty Poo Club is an all-in-one litter box solution designed to be convenient for you. Every month, Kitty Poo Club delivers an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that's pre-filled with the litter of your choice. The boxes are leak-proof, eco-friendly, and have a fun design for every season. When the month is up, just recycle the box and Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one to you no changing used litter, and no more cleaning the box. You can customize your order based on how many cats you have and what types of litter they prefer. And Kitty Poo Club has a no-risk guarantee, and you can easily customize or cancel at any time. So right now, Kitty Poo Club is offering a 20% discount off your first order when you set up auto-ship. By going to kittypooclub.com and entering promo code DINGO. Just go to kittypooclub.com and enter promo code DINGO to get 20% off when you sign up for the auto ship option. That's kittypooclub.com. And don't forget to enter promo code DINGO at checkout. We thank the Kitty Poo Club for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. No, I mean I, I'm I'm kind of a broken record on this stuff about um, about Congress. I think Congress is too weak. I think Congress has given away its powers. Uh, Matt Gates, who I'm becoming a little obsessed with because he's if he didn't exist I'd have to invent him as a caricature of mm-hmm. everything I think is wrong about um Congress. In that Vanity Fair profile, he had the, these rules and one of them was something along the lines of always do TV. Um, because if you're not on TV, you can't uh stir controversy, and if you're not stirring controversy, you're not governing. Which, like, that rumbling feeling you have are all of the founding fathers spinning in their graves. It is the exact opposite of what governing is, according to every political science textbook, <laughs> and and um, I keep meaning to put in the show notes, there's a study that came out, actually a couple that sort of touch on this, uh, where a lot of congressional offices are just closing up their actual policy shops and replacing them with these sort of Trump campaign cast offs who only know how to do memes and own the libs, which suggests that things are going to get also suggest things are going to get worse before they get better, because these people just don't. It's not just that they don't know how to legislate, it's that they're not interested in learning how to legislate.
1: No, they're not. And, uh, you know, I remember having this conversation a couple of years ago with Raul Labrador, who uh, is no longer in Congress, but he was a Tea Party guy who came in in 2010 from Idaho um, in the first district and and, uh, retired in 2018 to run for governor, and he lost in the primary out in Idaho. And I remember having this conversation with him because he was a Freedom Caucus guy, but he you know, and he would get fiery at times, but he was a pretty thoughtful legislator. And and, and uh, he had, you know, unlike many of his uh, buddies up there, he had pretty thought out reasons for why he would object to a lot of these things. And I remember having this conversation with him while he was trying to craft a, um, a it was the, the Puerto Rican uh, aid bill, I believe. And he was really invested in that. And he was working closely with the leadership. And I remember him relaying this conversation that he and Paul Ryan had where Ryan said to him and to a couple of other guys in the freedom caucus who had been helpful on this, he said, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of you guys. You guys are becoming legislators. And they thought it was like the most paternalistic bullshit they'd ever heard. <laughs> but, but Labrador said to me after that, he's like, you know, like I took offense to it cause I like to think of myself as pretty serious, but you know, like a lot of these other guys, you know, that applies. And what's interesting, Jonah is, um, uh, uh When I did Ryan's exit interview with him for my book, uh, he'd been out of office for like three weeks. He'd stepped down as speaker after the 2018 midterms. Ryan, unsolicited, when we were having this conversation, he singled out Matt Gaetz and he said, uh, you know, you look at a guy like this, he said, he's he's not a legislator, he's an entertainer and there's a difference. And that's, you know, for a guy like Ryan, who's very, um, very buttoned up and he doesn't mm. step out often. It was very telling that he, uh, by name, said that about a, a former colleague. And I'll give you one other quick anecdote that you'll enjoy because it's a good window into the mainstream media world. When I was writing this piece for Republican Convention Week uh, about sort of the meltdown of the GOP, uh, I I described Matt Gates as cartoonish and there was uh, a bit of a conversation internally about that because the editors, understandably, were not comfortable with that language. And uh, I ultimately won out and I said, guys, look, there's no other word that that does this guy justice, right? Like, you, you can't say he's controversial. You can't say that he's incendiary. Like, none of these other things. Well, he is a cartoon character, right? He led a raiding party on a skiff. During, <laughs> like, I mean, like, it doesn't... It, there, you know, and this is the kind of guy now who is prominently featured on cable television, who raises a lot of money, who has big name ID. He's probably going to wind up running for statewide office. He might wind up running for president. And because of everything we've seen over the last four years, we can no longer discount the idea or the possibility that he'll be viable, right? He could be yeah. a serious contender if he ran for president because, uh, not not in spite of his behavior, but because of his behavior.
2: So, uh, two things. One, um, I don't know if you saw this, but Gates had actually mentioned this thing from Ryan. Um, and it was so incredibly stupid by my lights where Gates said, you know, Ryan criticized me for not being enough of a legislature and not understanding that, that that going on TV is not the job. And then I saw that Ryan joined the board of, of Fox, the corporate board of Fox. And I took, he says, I, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I took that as a thinly veiled apology from Ryan that he now understood the importance of television. And it was like, I guarantee you that's not what Paul Ryan meant by that. You know that that, that must have yeah, that, that
1: was it. That must have been it. <laughs> I
2: was like, Oh, oh I would I, I don't want to get this high-paid corporate, you know, board seat, but I do need to apologize to Matt Gates in a really subtle way. So that's yeah. I guess I'll do it, you know. Um but uh uh and now I can't remember what the other part of it was, but, um, the, this thing, I mean, what's his name? Uh, uh, Jason Chaffetz, right. And mm-hmm. he left Congress to be a Fox news pundit. Matt Gates basically care, clearly cares more about being a Fox news pundit than he cares about actually being a Congressman. And, and for all I know, he does great constituent service, right? Cause that's turnkey. You have someone at home who's filling in potholes and and all that kind of stuff i have no idea but actually legislating in the national interest it's obvious that he doesn't care about this and this is one of the reasons why i think that one of our biggest problems is the weakness of parties themselves yes in that if 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 the parties aren't imposing discipline on their members to actually be constructive governing officials and instead they're like oh yeah you know owning the libs on social media getting a lot of Hits on cable news, and this is a huge problem on the left too. I mean, I think Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, in some ways, is a bit in the Matt Gates mold. I mean, she takes legislating more seriously than Matt Gates does, but she also takes sort of owning the magas as a big part of her operation. Um, and so the, the the bright lines between mass media, such as it is, and partisan and 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 party functions is kind of disappearing before our eyes.
1: Oh, and it has been. And that's, look, uh, for my money, whenever somebody asks uh, or brings up the conversation about, like, what's the biggest change in our politics? Like, how did we get to this point really and truly? I mean, look, it's a complicated answer, but you can, in my view, you can really distill it down to the, the gatekeeper's being removed uh from the parties because of that change in mass media and social media and technology and the ability in primaries right i mean yeah yeah, it, oh, yeah, yeah 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 100 yo yeah 100% and, and um the ability of people to speak to the base unfiltered and uh you know like this is a whole look we, we talk so much about institutional decline, Jonah. I I know you and I have had this conversation before about, you know, whether it's organized religion or major league baseball or, um, you know, government itself, but like political parties are institutions unto themselves, right? They always, they always have been, and they're really important institutions. And, you know, what we saw in 2016 was this sort of all out assault on the institutions themselves. And the, the, the assault on the Republican Party was more successful than the one on the on the Democratic side. But the Democratic uh, assault was not to be dismissed, right? Like Bernie right. Sanders, this guy who had spent 30 years wandering the halls of Congress by himself, mumbling under his breath, like this guy pushing the Clinton dynasty to the brink of extinction with no money and no organization, uh, like it told us something was coming, right? And, and that gets to our, our earlier conversation about You know Biden and whether he can govern with a unified Democratic uh, coalition. But I think the truth of the matter is that the the smoke-filled room, as it were, uh, its its disappearance has done real damage to both parties. Like the the inability of the party leadership to get a handle on some of these people and to at least in, you know, in some way, shape or form, sort of have a barrier to entry and say, no, you know what? Some of you, like back in 2010, even there was some ability to do that, right? Like Christine O'Donnell in the Delaware Senate race, Republicans cut her off at the national level. They said, we're not giving this lady any money. She's going around talking about witchcraft and casting spells on people. Like we're not giving her any money, right? If she was running today, that wouldn't be the case. They wouldn't dare, you know? Of course, she'd be QAnon, right? I mean, mean, you know. Well, we see that, right? The QAnon candidates are being embraced by Republican leadership in
2: Congress. Yeah, so, uh, I, I, you know, I've seen some reporting on this. I'm it, a lot of it is really anonymously sourced, and makes me a little nervous to buy into it entirely. I do think that Trump thinks that QAnon is an important part of his coalition, and and since they say nice things about him, he you know, you know he won't say bad things about them. Mm-hmm. Um, do you run into when you're driving around out there? Do you run into QAnon stuff a lot? Not a lot. No, I actually have been surprised that I haven't run into more of it. Although I
1: also think it's a little tricky, Jonah, because it's one of those like wink and nod conversations that maybe people aren't comfortable bringing up unless they know that you're sort of in on it or um, like, but but I have had, and I I tweeted this out a few months ago. Um, My eye opening moment with QAnon was when a family friend, somebody who has multiple advanced degrees and she's a a suburban mom of three kids. She's like, you know, the most normal person you'd ever meet. She started sending me emails a few months ago with links to all of these like Reddit posts and these, you know, rabbit holes about QAnon. And, and she believed, I mean, she 100% believed it and she wanted to know like what she should be doing about it and what I thought about it. And I was stunned. Like I I could not, I couldn't, I thought it was a joke and I showed it to my wife. Like, I couldn't believe that, that this was happening. So if it's, if that bug is infecting people like her, then it's real, then it's got to be infecting others. But no, I have personally not encountered a ton of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the QAnon stuff is a function of this institution thing, right? Yeah. That institutions are, they're sort of like the way, you know, the Senate was supposed to be the cooling saucer of the house. Uh, institutions are sort of like uh, the forests that absorb heavy agricultural runoff before it gets out to the sea. Institutions are these things that ground people, that that credentialize arguments, that credentialize experts, that legitimize legitimate theories and 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 banish illegitimate theories. And with all these institutions, not just political institutions, but sort of cultural, educational things, losing their credibility and social media allowing you to go around them, People just, if they lacking a validating institution to tell them what to believe, they believe all the junk that just happens to run off into their computer screen, and you see it more and more, and it's 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 amazing.
1: And 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 I would add to that that um, everything you just said is exactly right, and there's no there's no solution to it. This is why I'm I am just really pessimistic about where all this goes from here, Jonah. People are always you know, buddies and, and of mine and colleagues of mine are always ragging me like, you know, why are you so dark about all this stuff? You know, like history is cyclical. This stuff comes and goes. And I said, no, not the way that this is right now. I mean, I have this argument with Arthur Brooks and with people who are way smarter than me who are really optimistic. And I say, I don't know how you can be optimistic given this institutional decline because I feel like once some of those barriers come down, they never come back up. And, um, and I would add to everything you just said, Jonah, the ballot box is next, right? That's, that's the last institution to fall. And that's the one institution that I think really separates a society that's confused from a society that's in chaos. And we've got to be really careful with this election. I, I've been doing a lot of reporting on this in the last month, and I've got a big story coming next Friday before Election Day on, on just the loss of confidence in the integrity of the ballot box. Um, mm-hmm. because that's a, I, I think that that's might be the single biggest risk that we face right now as a, as a country. And it's something that we're not spending enough time talking about. Um, all
2: right, I've kept you for a while and, um, I know you got to go, go, um, hit Chick-fil-A and Arby's, but, um, with the full caveat that you could be completely wrong and you're not going to be held accountable to it, what do you think the most likely scenario is for, the end of the election, right? Because the election day is basically a two-month period now. Yeah. But um, uh, ha- what do you think happens after November 3rd? You know, I- I've really
1: gone back and forth on this. I- and it's not to give you a cop-out. I Look, I-, I think the most likely scenario as of today is a comfortable but not emphatic Biden victory. Um, it's, you know, Biden winning somewhere between Three hundred and twenty and three hundred and forty electoral votes. So again, comfortable, but not like a complete blowout. And uh, winning the popular vote by you know six or seven million, um, which you know historically would be pretty lopsided. Um, Look, I do think that. uh, So that I would say that that's like as of today, that's like the the the, the seventy percent chance that I see. But I do think that there is like probably a twenty percent chance of Biden blowing the doors off and you know pushing. 375 plus electoral votes and winning the popular vote by like 12 or 15 million. Like, I think that that's well within the realm of possibility. I do also think that there's like that 10% chance that Trump somehow, some way, uh, that, that, that we see turnout among the white working class juiced in a way that we didn't think was possible. Uh, and that voters come out in 2020 who have never voted in their lives, people who have been, you know, People are in their 60s who have never once cast a vote for anything who come out for Trump, like I think that that's possible. I don't think it's very likely at all, but I do think that there that there's some small avenue there for him to get across the finish line. It's just really hard to see with uh, with for a number of reasons, but primarily that suburban vote that I talked about earlier. You see, like the the polling that Republicans and Democrats have shown me in the last couple of weeks on the ground, Jonah, it's astonishing. I mean, he's there are there are suburban-based congressional districts that Trump won by 7 to 10 points that he's going to lose by 7 to 10 points. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know how you compensate for that sort of a swing.
2: Yeah. Now, all that sounds perfectly reasonable to me. I mean, I've been saying for a while, it's, and I'm not alone on this, but like all the pollsters that kind of follow on this stuff, you know, the Nate Silvers, Stone Byler, all those guys, you know, there's about an equal likelihood, by which I mean 10 to 15 percent, that Biden just blows up the electoral college and wins in a landslide as there is Trump narrowly picks the lock of the electoral college again. Mm-hmm. The one thing no one says anymore is that Trump can win the popular vote. Right. right. I and mean, that's just, no, no, no. It's and way. that itself is a huge problem going yes. forward. I mean, I'm, yes. I'm very pro electoral college, but it's, it, it, it's a much heavier lift for people like me. If one party with a shrinking demographic base, continually fails to win the popular vote it just becomes harder to argue i still think mm-hmm. i'm right about the electoral college but as a political matter it just becomes much harder to defend it in 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 that context
1: yeah and and uh and especially you know it's one thing if he's losing it by a half a million votes uh you know or even 3 million votes as he did a couple of years ago um i mean that's you know that's one thing but if he loses it by 10 million and somehow still wins the electoral college which It's not likely, but it is possible. Boy, oh boy. Like, what happens then? I mean, that's, you know, talk about institutional assaults. Yeah. It's going to get ugly.
2: Yeah. All right. On that cheerful note, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Tim Alberta, uh, author of American Carnage, I should say again, and fantastic book. Uh, Thanks so much for coming back. It's my pleasure, Jonah. Great talking with you, man. Okay. So, Tim is gone. Um, It was great to have him on. I think we avoided uh, getting saying anything that'll get too caught up in the news cycle. You know, it's always a little scary um, recording these things too far advance. And the nice thing about doing this is that maybe we can get this out a little earlier since the debate has the chance of sort of um, shaking everything up. Um, I believe that we are going to do another Dispatch Live event um, after the um, debate this week. At least that was the plan. And if we're not, Someone will edit out me saying this, so it's perfect either way. Um, and, uh, again, check out whatsnextevent.com to learn more about the conference we're putting on. It'd be great if every, if every listener of the Remnant signed up for that. We would be able to oper- operationalize our orbiting death ray way ahead of schedule. So uh, please do that. Um, If you can afford it, if you can swing it, totally understand if you can't. These are difficult times for some folks. Um, And beyond that, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW, group. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.